Hello and welcome to another episode of Cast Ins the Fire podcast. I'm on with Mom again. Hello. And we are on the 11th chapter of The Hobbit, On the Doorstep. So this is right after Bilbo and the dwarves are, you know, left Lake Town to move on to the Lonely Mountain. And um, it starts off with, um, actually, um, rowing up the long lake to, um, to where it passes it out into the river running, which is the, um, the river that flows from the mountain itself. And, um, there's... Men have been sent around another way, which I guess would be slower, bringing ponies and provisions to um, send along that wouldn't be as easily transported on the boats. Um, Though the ponies and men were there when they met up, so... I think it took them basically the same length of time. But they were rowing upstream against the current, yeah. Which made it tougher. And this, by the way, is uh, around October 12th. So it's starting to get cold. And the men who brought the supplies, um, they didn't want to stay because, um, they were starting to think of the dragon. It was easier to believe in the dragon and out in the nowheres than they did back in Lake Town. They definitely didn't want to be there after dark. I'm not actually sure how that's worse. I mean... Yeah, and they were traveling back. It was already starting to get dark, but they were traveling. They're going to be out after dark regardless. Well, some of them traveled via boats, and some of them traveled via ponies returning, I believe. And so, yeah, it's it's pretty cold at this point. It's... um desolate, there's um, pretty barren, not much grass, not bushes or trees except for broken, burned stumps where the dragon had um, damaged them in the past. Their first night was cold, wet, and lonely, it said. So that kind of gives you an idea. And, yeah, they didn't actually meet any trouble. They're at the skirts of the mountain, which I think this is actually intended to be a pretty large, you know, mountain with, um, if you've ever been on a proper mountain, not just a hill, it's got, you know, different sides to it with, not describing this well. Well, different sides with each feature, with different features, and um, though I kind of 
see the mountain as more, I guess, more craggy than, like, if you're looking at the book and the drawing of the front gate um, of the mountain, it all looks pretty smooth, like a, like a, like the upper part of the mountain kind of is like, I don't know, looking at Mount Fuji or something, and, uh, which I'm sure if you were close to Mount Fuji, it wouldn't look smo so smooth and whatever, uh, but, uh, how it's described is more, I guess, craggy, and they just have to explore different parts of the bottom of the mountain, uh, which could, you know, took time. And the first camp is on the western side of a great southern spur of the mountain, which ends in a hike called Raven Hill, where there used to be a watch post, but they didn't climb up into the watch post because it was too exposed. Um, now, they, they had come, you know, they all had either ponies or horses, plus there were two more horse or ponies beside that um, Bilbo and Balin were leading that carried more supplies. I imagine there were supplies on the ones they were riding as well, but... Um, and there were supplies that they left near the water's edge. In a tent. In a tent, because they, they couldn't carry it all. And they send Bilbo, Balin, Feely, and Keeley on a um, scouting expedition. Yeah, if you're hearing noise, it's just uh, the puppy. Practically a full-grown dog at this point. So the scouting ex expedition was to spy out the lands to the south where the front gate stood. And um, they see the ruins of Dale, which was the town of men that had been destroyed by the dragon years ago. No one lives there now. The mountain had a dark cavernous opening uh, at the front gates. And nobody wanted to go in through there. And they and, could see smokes coming out. And out of it, the waters of the running river sprang. Don't quite know how that works. Cause I think there's like an internal spring or underground stuff in the mountain, maybe. Um, but yes, there was steam and dark smoke. That is kind of, you know what was concerning them more than anything because that definitely seemed to be a sign of a dragon. And so how do you think it's it's working with Smog? Is he just magically hibernating and doesn't have to leave the mountain for food or Oh I think he does leave the mountain for food. I mean, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself but you know, we are going to be coming across him eating, and, you know, one day's meal was, what, six ponies or something? Yeah. So. These poor ponies just keep getting eaten. First the goblins, now. So, 
Yeah, I think Smaug has quite an appetite. Uh, and yet nobody sees him from Lake Town when he's flying around looking for... But maybe he's not flying around <coughs> Lake Town. He hadn't been there in quite a while, but there surely were other lands he went to. And uh, there was a scarcity of animals other than the occasional black and ominous crow uh, in the vicinity of the mountain, which tells me that... And Balin doesn't trust the crow. He thinks it... It's ominous, and it could be a spy. Actually, spies of evil. So. I kind of get the feeling they're not, and they're just crows, but crows have been used as spies of evil in another work of Tolkien, so maybe that's not so far-fetched, even though he wrote The Hobbit first. And later on in the podcast, we hear about another bird that was uh, not necessarily evil, but seemed to be uh, more aware of their talk and their actions. And um, this is also something that will be more important later. But the dwarves also had a historical friendship with um, the ravens. That's why they had uh, Raven Hill. Um, that's, that's where the ravens would bring them messages. And I don't mean Game of Thrones style as, you know, a, a carrier bird with a tied to the leg. I mean, actually, the bird could talk. Um... But I'm getting ahead of myself. So yeah, they're looking at the front gate and they, they're seeing the smoke so they think the dragon is probably still alive and well in there. Um, Bilbo um, pushes them to start a search on the western slopes for the secret door. And there's less sign of the dragon messing around there. And, um, so they make a new camp uh, that's in a long valley. There was some grass for the ponies and then they spent their days you know, searching out you know, different areas, you know, each day, and then going back to camp at night. And this remains steep terrain with tumbled rocks, and um, there's actually an an area with a a drop-off that they have to use a rope to get to and from, and Bomber refuses to do that at all. But at first, actually, Feely and Keely and Bilbo um, found a stone pillar at the mountain's southern corner. And there's an area that's described as a grassy bay, so I think that it's sort of like an indentation in the mountain <coughs> where some just, you know, flat ground with grass is growing. And well, that grassy bay is further up the mountain. Um... They 
um, actually from the from the um, let's see where I am. Okay, from that stone pillar they find steps, and then they they follow the steps to a narrow track, brought them to a narrower ledge that turned north across the face of the mountain, and. So that is the area where the bay is. And if we're boring you at all with mountain geography talk, well, this is how Tolkien writes. You either you like this stuff or... Anyhow, Feely, Keely, and Bilbo, Bilbo, excuse yeah. me, um, they, you know hurry back to you know the encampment to tell the others what they had found and there was a lot of excitement that night and they're all you know getting ready to go the next day to this uh, area that they had found and except for Bofer and Bomber who stayed behind to guard the ponies and the camp and also Bomber basically was like I'm not going up there either you know by rope or by the uh, path because I'm just too big too heavy I'll step on my beard you know there was like no way he just not gonna do that Though, that changes later on. Um, anyhow, uh, it's noted that if they fell from that narrow ledge they had to walk on, it was a 150-foot drop down to jagged rocks and such. Uh, so, you know, they had to be careful. And anyhow when they make it to the grassy bay they made their third camp and they used ropes to haul up supplies an occasional dwarf but bomber of course was not not one of them not one of them um so uh And, um, yeah, they believe that the door is on the smooth rock face on the inside of the bay, but they can't actually find any sign of it being there. Um, they, they try to go after the rock face with mining tools that they got from Lake Town. So these are human quality mining tools, not dwarf. But um, when they try to strike at the stone with it, the handles and that um, axe heads just break off. And so there is some kind of magic um, protecting that part of the rock or it would have um 
they would have made some kind of dent in it. Yes, even with um, human-made equipment. Well, Bilbo, you know, spends a lot of time contemplating this door or gate or whatever, and, you know, how and what to do next. And they're um, thinking of this area as the doorstep. You know, hence the name of the chapter on the doorstep. Anyhow, while he's contemplating it, and the sun is an orange ball sinking towards the level of his eyes. Uh, Bilbo went to the opening and there, pale and faint, was a thin new moon above the rim of earth. And at that very moment he heard a sharp, sharp crack behind him. There on the gray stone in the grass was an enormous thrush, nearly coal black, its pale yellow breast freckled with dark spots. Crack! It had caught a snail and was knocking it on the stone. Crack, crack. Now, it's, there were snails Big all snails. around up there at this doorstep. Um, but Bilbo suddenly understood, you know, what was to happen and he started yelling and waving for the dwarves to come and he quickly explained that you know what was uh, going to be happening or should happen and the sun sank lower and lower and their hopes fell Anyhow, Bilbo, even though the sun was sinking and the dwarves were disheartened that it had all but gone. Uh, and a gleam of light escapes from the clouds and hits right at a specific part of the rock face. And um, a ho there was a loud crack and a flake of rock just... Um, split from the wall and fell. And Thorn, Bilbo shouting for Thorn to bring the key. A hole appeared suddenly three feet above the ground. Uh, after, yeah, Thorn opens it with a key and, um, it, it churns as a snap and, um, straight cracks appeared and widened, and, um, the door swung inwards, and it was five feet high and three broad, and darkness flowed out like a vapor from this hole, which was just, um, sloped down into the side of the mountain. 
Yeah, darkness flowing out like a vapor. That's kind of properly ominous. I'm... <laughs> and that's how you end chapter 11. Uh, before I go on to chapter 12, um, unless Tolkien has actually listed the heights of things something, somewhere that I haven't read yet, um, I'm going to say this means that dwarves you know, whatever height they're meant to be, they are, on average, under five feet because the store made by them and for them is five feet high. Which would mean, hey, I could fit through it. I'd have to duck just a little bit. You'd fit through it just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm four, nine and three quarters, so yeah, I'm fine with a five-foot door. And I'm either five one or five three. The measurements are inconsistent, so I'll you know, hit my head a little on it. Um. Anyway, on to chapter twelve. Um, you know, just chapter twelve is inside inside information, information. and so they're just standing in front of that open door into the dark passageway and debating and um Thorin speaks and it's time for our esteemed Mr. Baggins now is the time for our esteemed Mr. Baggins who has proved himself a good companion on our long road and a hobbit full of courage and resource far exceeding his size and if I may say so possessed of good luck far exceeding the usual allowance now is the time for him to perform the service for which he was included in our company now is the time for him to earn his reward. Well, he, in fact, had done quite a few things already to earn his reward. Well, Thorne's being, you know, manipulative. <laughs> and and they weren't done yet, so he's not going to say, oh, you're done. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're going to make use of him as much as they can for as long as they can. But Which uh, Bilbo is... Uh, not thrilled with this and his answer is if you mean you think it is my job to go into the secret passage first O Thorin Thrain's son Oakenshield may your beard grow ever longer say so at once and have done I might refuse I've got you out of two messes already which are hardly in the original bargain so that I am I think already owed some reward but third time pays for all as my father used to say and somehow I don't think I shall refuse Perhaps I have begun to trust my luck more than I used to in the old days. And by this old days, he meant last spring. Back in his hobbit hole, living his hobbit life. But anyway, I think I will go and have a peep at once and get it over. Now, who is coming with me? He did not get a chorus of volunteers. Um, Feely and Keely looked a little uncomfortable, but... They didn't volunteer either, but Balin um, actually does um, volunteer to come in a little bit of the way with him. And he does go in with him, and it's obvious that this tunnel they're in was made by dwarves. It, it's beautifully made, smooth walls. You know, it's like... Quality dwarf craft, yeah. Yes. Uh. Um, and 
where they're walking is slowly leading them down into the depths of the mountain. Um, anyhow, they go far enough to where um, Balin can just barely see the faint outline of the door from the distance he is. And so he's like, okay, this is as far as I go. Good luck, Bilbo. And anyhow, that's when Bilbo slips on the ring. Now the ring will make him invisible. But that doesn't mean he doesn't make noise or smell. Though... Bilbo makes a lot less noise than dwarves do. He is much more stealth. Hobbits, you know, as the whole species have a um, talent for walking very quietly and going unnoticed. Uh, before I go on, um, there's, an in, there's an interesting bit um, from right before Bilbo entered the tunnel um, where it takes um, a bit of note from Tolkien as the narrator, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that the dwarves did intend to pay Bilbo really well for this service that you know they brought him along to do. Was he um, going to get like an equal share or something? Um, a fourteenth share. Yeah. And. Um, regarding the dwarves not volunteering except for Balin to go with him. There it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorn and company if you don't expect too much. Uh, some of the... Um, you don't see much in the way of tricky and treacherous dwarves in anything Tolkien has written, with the exception of, um, there's a little bit of stuff in the Silmarillion and the Children of Hurin, although, um, given the circumstances of those dwarves, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like the dwarves have become treacherous out of nowhere. Um, like, one of them is a family of dwarves that are... Uh, this is the Silmarillion, not uh, the Hobbit. That are, you know, trying to survive. And, you know, living off the land and get captured by outlaws. And the outlaws kill one of them. And... Oh, one of the dwarves betrays them. Like, yes, that's treacherous, but... Under those circumstances, that doesn't feel like it's just out of nowhere. Like, oh, dwarves are treacherous. Uh, Plenty of humans would have done the same thing. (laughs) Anyhow, now, with Bilbo and... um, Balin being in the tunnel, you've got to take note that 
This happened at night with a pale sky and stars were coming out. So I don't know how the eyesight of dwarves were, but surely Balin is not going to see the outline of the door nearly as well in the dark as he would in the light. You know, if there was daylight, or at least even, what is it, diffused daylight, since there was like an overhang there that probably made it shadowy and anyhow. But my my guess is he didn't go as far as all that before he said, okay, good luck. My general impression is the eyesight of dwarves is not fantastic. Um... What, with all the let's find the one with the best vision to throw the hook back in the woods when they're crossing that river? Yeah. Um, Oh, Bilbo is going on alone. It's getting warmer. With the ring on. And he's starting to see a glow, which means, yeah, there's, there's a dragon ahead. And he was trembling with fear. But his face was set and grim. He was much braver than he had been uh, back in Bag End. And, gee, he's gone without a pocket handkerchief for ages. Oh my goodness. Uh, But uh, he loosened his dagger in its sheath tightened his belt, and went on. I only carry a pocket handkerchief when I'm cosplaying as a hobbit. And then just so I can be like, yes, I do have a pocket handkerchief. Uh. And he's thinking what a fool he was and is. And then when he finally um, gets to the end of that little cavern, that's where he sees Smog, a vast red golden dragon, fast asleep. A thrumming came from his jaws and nostrils, and wisps of smoke, but his fires were low in slumber. Beneath him, under all his limbs and his huge coiled tail, and about him on all sides, stretching away across the unseen floors, lay countless piles of precious things, gold wrought and unwrought, gems and jewels, and silver red stained in the ruddy light. Smog lay with wings folded like an immeasurable bat, turned partly on one side so that the hobbit could see his underparts and his long pale belly crusted with gems and fragments of gold from his long lying on his costly bed. Behind him where the walls were nearest could dimly be seen coats of mail, helms and axes, swords and spears hanging, and there in rows stood great jars and vessels filled with a wealth that could not be guessed. Oh, that's smog. That's smog, yes. Uh, To me, this is a proper dragon. This is, like, the classic dragon. Um. Just a big red dragon on his, uh, treasure hoard, and... And Bilbo's breath was taken away is not even a good description of how Bilbo felt about it. There's no words 
left to express his staggerment. And um, uh, people have tried to estimate how rich Smog is with his treasure hoard um, and compare him against um, Scrooge McDuck and various billionaires in the real world and I don't think you can really calculate it beyond immense. They never give an exact amount besides there's a whole lot of it. Um, it that doesn't take into account how much of that is um, like mithril, which far exceeds the value of gold. Um, and the dragon has no use for it other than to lay there on it, around it, in the middle of it, admire it. He knew every piece that was in there. He's not spending it on anything. Not like the millionaires and billionaires of today who have to spend vast quantities just to live their lifestyle. But... Um... Yeah, so Bilbo's just staring at this and standing there for, um... what seemed like an age, and... Then, drawn almost against his will, he stole from the shadow of the doorway across the floor to the nearest edge of the mounds of treasure. And he grabs a great two-handled cup that's as heavy as he can carry. And Meanwhile, above him, the sleeping dragon lay. And um, Smug moved a little bit, and his snoring changed its note, but he didn't actually wake. And Bilbo fled. And he's like, I'm finally a real burglar now. I've burgled something. So, the the hobbit toiled back up the long tunnel. His heart was beating, and more fevered shaking was in his legs than when he was going down. And... But he clutched the cup... The the dwarves are, you know, thrilled when he comes back with the cup. And uh, they're patting him on the back and praising him. And putting themselves and all their families for generations to come at his service. And passing the cup from hand to hand. And Bilbo thought of himself more like a grocer than a burglar. Before this. Oh, no. Thorin said he was more like a grocer oh. than a burglar, and Bilbo was insulted. And I'll show him. I've got treasure now. I burgled it. I'm a burglar now. Right. Uh, and when he got out, it was midnight. The clouds were covering the stars, and he was just enjoying being out in the fresh air again. And the the dwarves, as they're, as I said, being uh, all excited about getting this one cup out of the treasure hoard and nothing done about the dragon yet. And um, the door, they mostly closed it, but they blocked it from closing all the way with a stone, which is a good idea because I doubt they would have been able to open it again. Like It was, you know, especially Durin's day when they got themselves in, it's not Durin's day anymore. And then they hear a rumbling like a volcano and dreadful echoes from the tunnel. 
and well, Smog has just woken up from a uneasy dream about a small warrior with a bitter sword and great courage. That sounds like Bilbo. That does sound like Bilbo. And he feels a breath of you know, fresh air in his cave that wasn't there before. And yeah, you know, he's like thinking, oh, why didn't it block this up a long time ago? And um, he thinks he heard a knocking sound from it. And then he stretches out and sniffs and notices his cup is gone and he absolutely loses it and um, flames and shakes the mountain with his um, flaming and um, trying to get his head at the hole He get he gets out of the mountain, out to the front gate, and is ready to hunt over the whole mountain and catch and trample the thief who took his cup he wasn't using anyway. But he didn't want to lose any of his hoard of gold. And and gems and jewels and everything. Just in time, um, Bilbo um, tells them all to get inside the the tunnel to hide because it's the only place the dragon really can't get to. Um, but Biffer's cousins Bomber and Bofer are still in the valley they, and the rest are like, they're all going to be killed and the ponies, all the supplies, we can't do anything. Um, Thorne's like, no, we are going to do something. And um, he sends Bilbo, Balin, Feely, and Keeley into the mountain to be safe. So, yeah, he protects his nephews uh, and gets ropes and hauls um, Bofer and Bomber up. And, yeah, Bomber came up just fine. Puffing and blowing while the ropes creaked. But they didn't break. And then they hauled up tools and bundles of stores. Um, they could not haul up the ponies, and the ponies um, broke their ropes and galloped off, and the dragon um, flew off to chase them and was gone. And Thorns, like, it's going to be the end of those poor beasts, and it is for some of them. So they spend a not pleasant night inside the dragon tunnel and they can hear um, hear him flying around occasionally. But he still can't get at them where they are. Now, uh, Smaug guessed from the ponies and from the traces of camps he had discovered that men had come up from the river and the lake and had scaled the mountainside. Um, and I think now is the time to point out that smog is not just, you know, an animal. He's 
um, fully sapient, highly intelligent, and, um, has, you know, thought and language just like any person, or probably even smarter than some, um. Now, Smog, uh, you know, he searched and searched, but the, the high-walled bay, uh, was something that he couldn't he get couldn't, into. Well, he couldn't see because of the high walls, uh, but, you know, he'd hunted in vain till the dawn chilled his wrath, and he went back to his golden couch to sleep and to gather new strength, and he would neither forget or forgive the theft, not in a thousand years. Uh or not if a thousand years, turned him to smoldering stone. Yeah, I get the impression Smog might be on some level, like, meant to be an embodiment of greed. Yeah. Um, well, the dwarves are less in favor with Bilbo, who's, you know, gotten Smog angry so fast, even though... They wanted him. They were all filled. He took a piece of treasure right before then. And Bilbo was like, well, what did you want me to do? You didn't hire me to kill the dragon. I'm here to steal treasure. That's what I did. Did you expect me to steal it all at once? Um, He also basically said he's not a warrior. And warriors, you know, that's their job to kill the dragon. And considering how it took all he could do to carry that one goblet, uh, being, you know, a small hobbit. Uh, he says it would take hundreds of years for him to bring up all the treasure if he were 50 times as big and smog as tame as a rabbit. And he's pretty accurate. And so... Um, Thornton says, never mind about all that for the moment. What are we to do now, today? And Bilbo says, there's nothing we really can do but stay where they are. Um, But he's willing to go down there again with his ring. This time it's daytime. It's It's daytime. it's, It's... You know, this very noon. Not that it matters inside a cave. Well, as far as a little light at the entrance, there would be. And he's willing to go down and see what's going on, and uh, perhaps a solution of some sort will turn up. And he, his father had a saying, every worm has its weak spot, although he doesn't think it was from any personal experience on his father's part. Which is, I would say, true, considering his father was a homebody bungo baggins. Now the dwarves accepted his offer. Um, 
he goes, noon comes, he goes down the tunnel, um, there's only a faint glow coming from it. Bilbo feels very confident because Smog would not see him nor hear him. He forgot or never knew about Smog's sense of smell. And now he gets down to where Smog is. He looks fast asleep. He even looks like he is dead. It's then he sees a sudden thin and piercing ray of red from under the drooping lid of the dragon's eye. He was only pretending to be asleep. Um, uh, do you think this is like an actual ray of light or do you think it's just the dragon's eye? Is... It's the dragon's eye. It, it's, it's got a glow of fiery red. But is it just, you know, the eye glowing or... Like, in the animated movie, it makes Smog's eyes look like they got a bit of a searchlight feature going on. And I don't think that's the intent. But... I, I don't either. Um, and then Smog spoke. Well, thief, I smell you and I feel your air. I hear your breath. Come along. Help yourself again. There is plenty and to spare. And... Bilbo isn't quite so unlearned in dragon lore as to just take that at face value and uh, run up and get more treasure. And he replies, No, thank you, O Smog the Tremendous. I did not come for presents. I only wished to have a look at you and see if you were truly as great as tales say. I did not believe them. And Smog is feeling flattered. And... Do you now, said the dragon, dragon somewhat flattered, even though he did not believe a word of it. <sighs> Truly songs and tales fall utterly short of the reality, O oh Smog, the chiefest and greatest of calamities, replied Bilbo. He's getting quite... Uh, uh, flattering. Flattering and... Uh, Which is smart when you don't want to get toasted. Um... And and, uh, Smog says, "You have nice manners for a thief and a liar." And you, you seem familiar with my name, but I don't seem to remember smelling you before. Who are you, and where do you come from? May I ask? And uh, well, Bilbo goes into a rhyming sort uh, sort of. Uh, he knows better than to give the dragon his real name, but he also doesn't think that flat out refusing the dragon is going to go well either. I came, I come from under the hill, and under the hills and over the hills my paths led, and through the air I am he that walks unseen. I am the clue finder, the web cutter, the stinging fly. I was chosen for the lucky number. I am he that buries his friends alive and drowns them and draws them alive again from the water. I came from the end of a bag, but no bag went over me. I am the friend of bears and the guest of eagles. I am ring winner and luck wearer, and I am barrel rider. And Bilbo's getting a little carried away with himself with his uh, riddling talk. And Smog's leaving uh, little comments and, about, and each th about the things and... and 
once you hear some of the things that Bilbo has said about himself, he's talking about the journey he had to get there, but he's giving away a little too much. Like, you probably recognize the things Bilbo is referring to. Uh, Barrel Rider, that puts the thought in Smog's mind of lake men because of their uh, barrel trade with the elves. I suppose uh, Smug could have just as easily thought he was connected with the elves, but he didn't. And the lake men are closer, so... Well, Smog said, maybe Beryl was your pony's name. It was fat And enough. maybe not. I ate six of them last night, and she'll catch and eat all the others before long. In return for that excellent meal, I will give you one piece of advice for your good. Don't have more to do with dwarves than you can help. And Bilbo pretends to be surprised of anything Thing to dwarves. do with dwarves. What about dwarves? And the dragon, like, I know the smell and taste of dwarf. You can't tell me I can eat a pony that's been ridden by a dwarf without knowing it. Um, and he's thinking that Bilbo, you know, had sold the cup that he had stolen. And you'll come to a bad end if you um, go with uh, dwarf friends, thief barrel rider. Go back and tell them so from me. Um, that Smog did not say that he didn't recognize the smell of Hobbit. Now, here's a bit of backstory. Um, this came up in a, a Tolkien book, Unfinished Tales, which... Um, is a collection of notes Tolkien started on that didn't get really published until later. And one of them has to do with the backstory of Gandalf choosing Bilbo for this. And part of the reason is because Hobbit smell would be totally unfamiliar with, to the dragon because of how far away the Shire is. Um, and he'd recognize a man or dwarf. Now, I'm not, I don't understand why this really gives any particular advantage. Like, so what? He smelled Bilbo and it was different, but how would it have changed the outcome in any way if he'd been something else that smelled familiar? I would think the stealth of the Hobbit is better. He's able to walk without being easily heard would be a lot more important than his smell. But he was... Bilbo, in talking with Smog, was in grievous danger of coming under the dragon spell. And... Which I take to mean that he was at risk of, like, getting mesmerized and revealing way too much, or revealing himself, but well, it said I don't he know. had an unaccountable desire seized hold of him to rush out and reveal himself and tell all the truth to Smog, which would have been his end right then. Yeah, Smog would have just killed them all. Right, but he did pluck up the courage to speak again 
And he said, you don't know everything, O Smog the Mighty. Not gold alone brought us hither. And right there in that, he's already said, it's not just him, it's us. us. And Smog is like, why not say us 14 and be done with it, Mr. Lucky Number? So Smog was listening. Smog was listening. He's highly intelligent, except for when he's totally lost his temper. Um, uh, Bilbo you know, should have been a lot more careful about this. And uh, he says that they came for um, revenge also. Oh, Smog, the unassessably wealthy, you must realize that your success has made you some bitter enemies. And Smog laughed, and it's, it shook Bilbo to the floor, and the dwarves further up the tunnel hear this, and they think Bilbo has been killed. Revenge, he snorted, and the light of his eyes lit the hall from floor to ceiling like scarlet lightning. Revenge, the king under the mountain is dead, and where are his kin that dare seek revenge? Girion, lord of Dale, is dead, and I have eaten his people like a wolf among sheep. And where are his sons' sons that dare approach me? I kill where I wish, and none dare resist. I laid low the warriors of old, and their like is not in the world today. Then I was but young and tender. Now I am old and strong, 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 thief in the shadows. He gloated. My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are swords, my claws spears. The shock of my tail a thunderbolt. My wing is a hurricane, and my breath death. So a bit more description uh, in a flowery way of uh, Smog and his power. And uh, Bilbo's pretty scared even more then, but he says that he's always understood that dragons were softer underneath in the region of their chest, but doubtless one so fortified has thought of that. And Smog stops short and says his information is antiquated, and that he's armored above and below with iron scales and hard gems. No blade can pierce me. Um, oh, this actually is a thing that doesn't come into this story, um, that some of the earlier dragons did have softer scales on the underside, so that story existed for a reason. And on a side note, though this isn't a dragon, uh, we used to handle alligators, and the softest places of, of an alligator would be like their armpits and under their chin, uh, so that like their neck, very, very soft and just, I don't know, smooth and not at all like the backsides of an alligator. Um, and that live action smog, the CGI one, Really, his chin looked like it was probably soft similarly, maybe not quite as much. Uh, that doesn't mean it's that way in the book. Now, Bilbo had, when he first saw Smog, since Smog was kind of laying on his side a bit, 
had already seen a glimpse of the underbelly, but he wanted another. Uh, so, so Smog rolls over for Bilbo to look and see how you know piercing proof his underside is, and Bilbo looks and he's you know praising how flawless and marvelous it is. He but says, "Nowhere, there, truly, there can nowhere be found the equal of Lord Smog, the impenetrable. What uh, magnificence!" To possess a waistcoat of fine diamonds. But what he doesn't say out loud, but he notices, is that in the hollow of his left breast, there is a place where there's a large patch with no scale, as bare as a snail out of its shell. Of course, he doesn't say that out loud. No. But he he certainly had seen it. He saw it the first time, and he confirmed what he had seen the first time this, this time. Uh, there's no explanation on why he's missing scales there. Um, in the live-action movie, it had been because um, Geary and Lord of Dale had launched a scorpion bolt at him, um, and it had hit and not killed him, but had knocked some of the scales loose, I guess. Um, there's no mention of this or hint of this in the books. Like maybe something like that had happened. Maybe it hadn't. So there's no mention. Anyhow, after he'd seen that Mr. Baggins' one idea was to get away, uh, and he said, Well, I really must not detain your magnificence any longer, he said, or keep you from much-needed rest. Ponies take some catching, I believe, after a long start. And so do burglars, he added as a parting shot as he darted back and fled up the tunnel. It was an unfortunate remark, for the dragon spouted terrific flames after him, and fast though he sped up the slope, he had not gone nearly far enough to be comfortable before the ghastly head of smog was thrust against the opening behind. Luckily, the whole head and jaw could not um, actually fit into the in. hole, but he was still, you know, co- flaming concentrated, you know, flames in a s- enclosed and space. And, his it's, nostrils. and Bilbo um, runs out as hard as he can and falls in a faint on the doorstep, and he does have flames well, scored. Well, okay, yes, you're right. He does have flame scorches on, like, the back of his hair and the hair on the back of his feet. More than just flame scorches, it was down to his skin. So he basically cooked the back of Bilbo's head, you know, taking all the hair. So it was just a little singed matter left. And it was a long time before it grew back properly again. So the dwarves revived him and doctored his scorches as well as they could. And the bird, the thrush, is just there cracking his snails just like before. And um, Bilbo actually throws a rock at it and says, Drat the bird, I believe he is listening and I don't like the look of him. And Thorn says to leave it alone. The thrushes are good and friendly. This is a very old bird. 
and it's maybe the last of the ancient breed that used to live there um, in the times of and they were friendly with his father and grandfather and tame to them and um, so a long lived and magical race and this one might even have been alive that long a couple of hundred years or more and that the men of Dale could understand their language and were using them as messengers. Um, yeah, remember that bit. That's important. And Bilbo says, we'll have news to take to Lake Town, all right, if that's what he's after. But he doesn't think there are any people left there that trouble with flush language. And, um... Anyhow, um... They, yeah, the dwarves ask Bilbo about what he found out there, and Bilbo tells them all he can remember, but um, he thinks he said too much and that the dragon's putting it together with the camp and the ponies, and he has the horrible feeling that the, the dragon is going to you know, hit Lake Town next because of what he said. And he's right. Um... And he wished that he had never said that about being a barrel rider because even a blind rabbit in these parts would think of the lake men. And uh, they get to talking about the dragon slaying as historical, dubious, and mythical and the various sorts of stabs and jabs and undercuts and the different arts, devices, and stratagems by which they had been accomplished. Anyhow, during all of this conversation about, you know, how to kill a dragon or whatever, the thrush was listening. And um, their general opinion that trying to stab the dragon while it's asleep um, would be more likely to end in disaster than a bold frontal attack. I'm not actually sure why that is, but... Anyhow, uh... About the time they had concluded their talk of, you know, dragon slaying, the stars were just beginning to come out, and the thrush uh, spread, silently spread its wings and flew away. And meanwhile, Bilbo becomes more and more unhappy and is foreboding growing. And at last, he said, you know, we're not safe here. Um, and so... Um, he, he felt that, you know, they, they really should, you know, get into the tunnel and stay there and shut the door. That, that he felt smog was going to be coming out any minute and they had, there had to be no sign of them. And he seemed so much in earnest that the dwarves at last did as he said, though they delayed shutting the door. It seemed a desperate plan, 
and no one knew whether or not they could get the door open again from the inside. And the thought of being trapped in there and not being able to get out through that opening uh, was definitely a scary thought. So they sat for a, a longish while inside, not far from the half-open door, and went on talking. Um, they talked about the dragon's wicked words, about the dwarves. Um, Bilbo wished he'd never heard that, but, you know, you can't undo what you hear. And they talk about the, the treasures and what kind of... Um, coats of mail and jewels and um, spears made for the armies of the great king Bladderthin, long since dead. Uh, a bit about Bladderthin as a name. Um, Tolkien was originally going to use that name for Gandalf and um, changed his mind, so wrote it as Gandalf. I think Gandalf fits better. Um, but I guess Bladderthin was uh, used as a name still for an earlier king, I presume, of the dwarves. Um, actually, no, not for the dwarves, because um, they never got to being delivered or paid for. That means that this King Bladderthum had uh, commissioned the dwarves to make armor for him. And but he was, probably wasn't a dwarf himself. And it was still there. Um, a great golden, golden cup of floor, two-handed hammered and carven with birds and flowers whose eyes and petals were made of jewels, um, coats of mail, gilded and silvered and impenetrable, um, necklace of Girion, Lord of Dale, made of 500 emeralds green as grass, which he gave for the arming of his eldest son in a coat of dwarf-linked rings, the like of which had never been made before, for it was wrought of pure silver to the power and strength of triple steel. That's um, Mithril, which will be discussed in more detail in uh, Lord of the Rings. And how I said before, this actually changes um, abilities to calculate the value of Smog's treasure because even a small amount of mithril is worth an immense amount, much more than gold. Um, like a small um, coat of it is monetarily worth basically the value of a country. Um, and um, the fairest of all the treasures was a great white gem which the dwarves had found beneath the roots of the mountain, the heart of the mountain, the Arkenstone of Thrain. And um, Thorn is clearly very excited about this particular treasure. Um, he's uh, murmuring about it in the dark, half dreaming with his chin upon his knees. It was like a globe with a thousand facets. It shone like silver in the firelight, like water in the sun, like snow under the stars, like rain upon the moon. Um, yeah, I actually don't think the movie did it justice. Uh, yeah. 
and um, this is definitely going to be important later. And anyhow, while the dwarves are going on about you know treasure, the treasure, Bilbo. He's still uneasy, and he's begs them to close the door. Um, he doesn't trust the silence. It's scaring him worse than all the noise there was last night from the dragon. And something in his voice gave the dwarves an uncomfortable feeling. And Thorin shook off his dreams. And getting up, he kicked away the stone that wedged the door. Then they thrust upon it, and it closed with a snap and a clang. No trace of a keyhole was there left on the inside. They were shut in the mountain. And but that wasn't a moment too soon, because they hear a noise like battering rams, and that's the dragon smashing the side of the mountain where the door had been. And the it would have gotten them. Yeah. The rocks are broken to smithereens, the door is gone, it's all caved in on that end. Um, so regardless, they have no choice besides uh, stay there or try to get out through the front gate that the dragon uses. And... The smog's broken in that part of the mountain, but he still wasn't able to actually get to um, the Hobbit and Taurus. We were further up the tunnel. And he's enraged about this, and just as Bilbo guessed, um, he's headed off toward Lake Town. Barrel Rider, he snorted. Your feet came from the waterside, and up the water you came without a doubt. I don't know your smell, but you are not one of those men of the lake. But if you are not one of those men of the lake, you had their help. They shall see me and remember who is the real king under the mountain. And he rose in fire and went away south towards the running river. And that... Ends the chapter. Ends that chapter. And the next chapter we will do, but not today. Um, chapter 13, Not at Home. And we will do that soon, so we won't leave you hanging too long. Yeah, you have any more commentary about this? I mean, I kind of went on tangents about the different treasures and whatnot. Well, it is a cliffhanger, uh, but at least, you know, they're all in the tunnel. They have most of their supplies, except for there are still supplies by the water at the tent. Uh, the horses... Most of them are gone. Well, we know six are gone, but probably more, if not all. And uh, so I don't know how long they could go on the supplies they had. Uh, and their only way out of where they are is through... The dragon inhabited, as far as they know, part of the mountain, without knowing whether the dragon is there, not there, when or if it's coming back. I mean, they know then and there that it's heading off to Lake Town, but they don't know how long it'll be gone, what happens to Lake Town, 
uh, any of that stuff at this point. So, hope you enjoyed these two chapters. Um, as far as the book goes, we're close to the end. We've done the 12th chapter. It's a 17-chapter book. Um, it's like four-fifths of the way done. Um, so it won't take too much longer before uh, we have concluded The Hobbit. I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, it's certainly my favorite Tolkien book by far. And one of the first books that got me started, you know, as a fantasy reader. You know, that and um, the Narnia series. Well, this is a book that was read to me, I would say, somewhere 60 or more years ago. And I read it when uh, I was eight. But, uh, anything else you want to... Uh... Um, back to the part about the dwarves not, not being, uh, having heroic natures. I'm, I guess I can't really speak for every dwarf, you know, either way. But I feel that Tolkien semi-retconned that in how he wrote dwarves in later, um, stuff. And I think Gimli in Lord of the Rings is plenty heroic, um... And, um, in another of his, um, writings, I believe this comes up in the Silmarillion, and it's definitely mentioned in Children of Hurin, um, there's a dwarf that actually confronts a dragon, um, head-on with a sword, and he doesn't kill it, but he does injure it. Um, this is not Smog, this is way before Smog's time. Um, and there's, you know, various writing where the dwarves are, you know, mighty warriors in battle, so I think that that line might be something Tolkien changed his mind on. Um, yeah, I don't have anything really else to say about this chapter either that wouldn't be major spoilers for stuff ahead, so I'll get to those things when I get to them. Um, thank you for listening to Cast Into the Fire podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, please message us on Facebook at any time. And uh, have a nice day. Goodbye. Bye.